I had a 20-year career and I didn't have a happier year. I didn't have a more enjoyable season in my entire career than my season at Kelly. And I always say that to everybody, I always say it. It always surprises people because they think, mm, when you're at the end of your career. No, it was absolutely brilliant. It gave me the biggest joy. And I played football for joy. But the, the people there, the reaction I got for the fans eventually, when they, they weren't negative. They were very understanding at the start. But it wasn't working for a five or six games. Uh, but the reaction for the fans was just brilliant. For a player who spent little over a year in Ayrshire, Pat Nevin had a huge impact. His international class technique still there for all to see, even at 34 years old. In this episode of Killy Histories, Pat looks back at the band of brothers he found at Kilmarnock. Mavis, Bunyan, Ditcher, Bully, and all the rest. Spend an hour with Nifty as he scoops his way through 1997-98. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is Pat Nevin. October 1997, you had said that you hadn't maybe been fit for the first few games at Kilmarnock. Yeah. Now, the team as a whole, it made quite a poor start. Did you ask yourself to coin a phrase, my God, what have I done? Uh, absolutely. I, I did to some degree, and I can remember this specific game. I think it was a home game. Because we started with four away games in the league in a row. It was not helpful. And we were just getting ourselves together. But I thought, I'll be honest with you, I'd come up, I'd been playing at the very top level in England. And I thought, well, you know, this should be okay. This should be quite cool. I'd been until very recently, Scottish International. And in the first few games, it was like mayhem. Like, is anyone going to stop for a minute? Is anyone going to pass to each other? Is anyone going to slow down and make intelligent movement and runs? But, and I'm not talking about Kelly players. I'm talking about everybody. It just seemed like a melee as opposed to a game of football half the time. And I was used to something slightly different from that. Happy to play hard work games, happy to play high press games, because I'd done that. I played against Wimbledon, they used to do that sort of thing. But it just didn't seem to calm down. There was one game where I'd say to Bobby Williams, who was the manager at the time, I said, Look, just play me in a 10 role. You can just play me there. I'll find a space and I'll develop it. So it'd be better because you're stuck me out in the wing. To be fair, it's not working because the ball's not getting there often enough. He, he did. And I had a stinker. <laughs> he took me off at half time. And that's. To get back to your question, I sat in the dressing room thinking, have I made a mistake here? Because I liked Bobby. I'm beginning to get to know some of the players. And uh, I just thought, I, I don't really understand why it's not working yet. Because these guys are good. I'm surrounded by quite good players. But we were losing games and it was a kind of weird lack of confidence. I remember one game at Celtic Park, we could beat 4-0. And I'm looking around these guys and I'm thinking, you all can play. Why are you scared of this lot? It's <laughs> just because they weren't going away hoops. Because like, I played my entire career against Liverpool, who were the best team in Europe, if not the world at the time. 
you know, we're playing against some of the best players in the world week in, week out. You're never scared of it. You just go at it, you know, Anfield, you know, whatever, Highbury, you name it. We just go and have a dig. So right at about that point in the start of the season, we didn't have a good start. And I'm thinking, I just don't know. And then a couple of things happened. It kind of changed. We started playing better, working together. But I got to understand the strengths and some of the weaknesses of some of my teammates. And when I got that, it kind of just clicked. And it was really quite quick. And it was a couple of occasions, a very specific occasion I remember, where I kind of had to make it click. And it was technical things that I'd done with the players around me. And when that happened, it just went really well after that. It did calm down. And we started to play a bit more football. And we had people like Gary Holt in midfield, Mark Riley, nervous. By the way, that was one of the other great things about Kelly. I'd been in England for about 15 years, right? And I came back up. We had rotten nicknames down here. Oh, that's a great nicknames. I mean, like, honestly, Ditcher, Mavis. I mean, just like from nowhere, they had these brilliant nicknames. And I, I would use, I would use my, my nickname. And I hadn't been called my nickname since I played in Scotland. But immediately, you know, Dylan Kerr would say, are you all right, Nifty? And like, nobody called me Nifty for 15 years, but I was Nifty again. And I, I kind of, at that point, I almost felt, I'm, I'm home. I honestly did feel that. I'm home. By the way, you mentioned another nickname there. Which one was that? Bully, Ali Mitchell. Oh, Billy. Perfect. Exactly. We were them. And we all had these bunion. I mean, bunion, <laughs> really. And nobody ever called each other their, their first names. And then you didn't get that the same. In England, it was a bit like, you know, if your name was Mark Wright, it would be Wrighty, you know. Oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, good nicknames. I knew I was going to come back and live in Scotland and I wanted to finish my career in Scotland. And Celtic had tried to buy me about three or four times in my career and it never happened for a variety of reasons. It never happened. And my time at Tranmere had been brilliant. I mean, really brilliant. What a team. But it was coming to an end because, you know, new manager, all that sort of usual stuff. And I just got a phone call out of the blue during pre-season and it was, uh, could you go up and see Kilmarnock? I'm like, yeah, Premier League, at the top level in Scotland, yeah. I can go and have a word there. And I just walked in, arrived up and uh, met Bobby. Sometimes you only need five minutes in somebody's company and you know. You know, I'm, I'm kind of quick with that, usually. Can't tell everything about everybody, but I can, I can tell honesty. And I can tell trustworthiness. And I can tell somebody who's not BSing me. And Bobby came from about 200 yards away from where I came from in Easter House. Now, you almost wouldn't know that from our accents because his is a lot stronger, I think, than mine. But he just, we just talked to, to each other at two last Easter house. He's coming back again to Easter house. <laughs> Been away for a long time. So um, I sat in his office and uh, we, we were sitting sat chatting away and he, some of the stories he's telling us were just great. He sat down and he said, look, it'd be great if you could come here, we man. It'd be great. Absolutely brilliant. I went, well, I'd, I'd love it. You know, I just went from back home to Scotland and I was, no, no, okay, I want to watch if you, if you come to us. Says, You're kind of player that we need, you know, somebody that can create for us, somebody that can do something different. You know, I, we're a wee bit predictable sometimes. I went, no problem at all. I said, but that, is that the kind of, I didn't know Bobby as a player. And I said, is that the kind of player you were? Because I know you were a forward, Bobby. I went, no, no I just like kicking feet. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, he walked out the room. He got a call or something, I had to go out the room. And I'm sitting in his room. And he ran back in. And he's grabbed me. And he grabbed me by the scruff and he threw me out the door. 
what the hell's going on? What? He says, you wee S-H-I-T. <laughs> I've just read your book that you've just wrote, and I know what you've done in Ken Bates' room. <laughs> and I'd actually rifle through Ken Bates' drawers when I was at Chelsea to get all the contracts because he'd treated me badly. I wouldn't have done that with Bobby. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. We were both creasing up and laughing afterwards. And it was just a real feeling of, nah, this is cool. And I went out and seen the lads. It's really hard to explain to people. I'm not anti-English. There's not an English, anti-English bone in my body. And I know there's all sorts of politics behind that, but I'm not. I love England, right? And I, I've lived there and great, great friends and all that sort of stuff. But see when you come home and you just feel at one with everything and your surroundings. It, it was a, a brilliant feeling. And my first couple of training sessions just with the lads, you know, for about two or three training sessions, like obviously I was an international, I played the highest, you know, Chelsea's and Everton's and all that sort of stuff. And I'd been chairman of the union, right? I felt about two or three, it was, it was almost like Mr. Nevin. <laughs> and I'm like, I've had enough of that. I don't need that. And I think it was probably Dylan Kerr who kind of broke it and just slaughtered me one day. And I was gone. And I, I, honestly, I, I think I started laughing that day and I didn't start stop laughing for a year, <laughs> for the whole time. So as you can tell me I'm talking now, I had a 20 year career and I didn't have a happier year. I didn't have a more enjoyable season in my entire career than my season at Kelly. And I always say that to everybody, I always say it. It always surprises people because they think, mm, one year at the end of your career. No, it was absolutely brilliant. It gave me the biggest joy. And I played football for joy. But the, the people there, the reaction I got for the fans eventually, when <laughs> they weren't negative. They were very understanding at the start. But it wasn't working for a five or six game. Uh, but the reaction for the fans was just brilliant. You've said that the fans were understanding but there was, I know you've talked about this before, but there was an element of expectation immediately. Pat Nevin's coming in, let's get it going. Yeah, but, and absolutely. They expected, you know, lots of creation. Maybe not necessarily lots of goals. I wasn't necessarily known as a goal scorer. I was a one in five kind of goal scorer throughout my entire career. And that was roughly my numbers at Kelly as well. But it was the creation that they were looking for. And the excitement and entertainment. And it was just really difficult at that start part of London. I'll give an explanation of, of why this works um, and explain it to any fans listening. Now, I've been playing, if I'm playing, and this is no, not to the detriment of any players around me at the time, but if I'm playing with Kenny Dalglish and I'm playing with, you know, top dog, I was playing with Whiteside down at Everton, I'm playing with all surrounded by internationals the whole time and top international, right? Everywhere I played, right? And even when I'm playing at Tramia, it's John Aldridge, you know, it's, it's right top, top players, right? And I come to Kilmarnock and I, I, I got a ball once out wide on the right-hand side. And I dummy three players and I drag three defenders towards me, right? Now, I will do that in a midfield in the park when I'm down in England. I know fine well that the guy behind me, my right back, he will fly past me because he knows I'm, I'm in charge of the situation. I'm deliberately drawing them in to develop space for him. I'm not looking at him, but that's happening, Right. When I first came to command, I would drag these three players in and I had three Ogrons all running at me. I'm doing this deliberately. And then I look back at my right back. It's 40 yards away back there. And I'm going, well, you're supposed to, you're supposed to overlap. Bang, I get hit by three players. And the Kelly fans are going, why is he getting caught? You know? And I'm thinking, do you not know he was supposed to do that? And then 
And I remember it was Gus, Gus McPherson. And I'm thinking, what did you sell me down the river for there? But he didn't know me as a style and he hadn't he played with me to that level to know that that was to be done. So it took a while. And I remember after that, it happened a couple of times. I, I went to Gus and I went to... Um, God, he's one of my best mates at the team. I completely like Dylan. I went to Dylan and uh, Kerr because I play left or right. I no, didn't mind left or right, whatever, you know. And they said to him, simple, simple thing. See when I get the ball and I move and I dribble and I drag. Don't look. Go. Just go. Don't look at me. Just go. If I get caught, my problem. If you lose the ball and they break, my problem, my handle belt. I'll take it. Just go. I'll find it. And I said to Sidney Holty, Gary Holt. And this was, it was a real breakthrough moment for us because Holty was amazing. Gary Holt was an amazing engine as a player. I mean, like really international class as a, as a you know, you know, somebody who could arrive in boxes. And over the years, you, I, mean, I go all the way back to John Walk, was like that. Played with Brian McClare, who always arrived in the box. So players like that who you just make a direct link to the box if you tell them. And they're hard to stop because they're so powerful and they're so strong. And I said to Holy, just go. And of course, Holy being ex-army, can take orders. <laughs> and he did. After that, it, it just flowed because they kind of got it. You know, if they stand there stationary, then I'm stuffed because all that work I'm doing is going to kill me. Now, for the fans watching on, before that's happened, they're thinking, well, he keeps on getting caught in the ball. He's doing too much dribbling. But we're not seeing the fact that I'm developing a situation and I've, it's, a, it's a much more sophisticated thing. But it needs everybody to be on that wavelength to do it. Um, and it took a while. It took a wee while. And I try and work on it training and you say to people, you know, there's other people that, that just had that ability. Nick Bunyan always knew where to run. He's a really clever mover, you know, so he's a classic set forward. So if I was on the ball moving inside, Bunyan would make a good run, I'll find you. I'll try and find you anyway. But with some of the others, I kind of had to say, look, this is what I do and this is what you've got to do off it. When that came out, when that finally clicked, the hearts away, we could beat 5-3. We were great. <laughs> I remember thinking that day. Wait a minute. I've scored one, helped make one that uh, I think Holty might have put in in the end there. A move with Mavis and I. And I remember thinking, yeah, if Arsenal might score that goal, we're all saying, wow. And I'm beginning to look around thinking, we've, we're not doing so well here, points-wise, but there's enough quality. It's actually, this is good enough. And it's, it's an odd thing I've always had in my when I did my, my job after football, a team might be doing badly with points and I'll still say, no, no, they'll be fine. They're okay. Yeah, and I'm really comfortable with it. And I remember thinking that at the time. Actually, we're fine. <laughs> it could be okay. As you say, the talent was there. What does it take to unlock something like that? I would say balance. It is balance. Sometimes it's... I've seen teams that I've played in teams that have been player for player really, really good. But as a team, they're really quite average. You know, they're just, I can remember an early Everton team I played for, and I looked around me, like there was Graham Sharp, there was McCall, there was Scotty, you know, there's Sheedy. There was, and I'm thinking, wow, I've got right good players, Reed, you name it. I mean, everywhere I looked, there was right good players. But it wasn't working. And like, there's Trevor Stephen, and there's everything. When I say it wasn't working, we were like top six, like, and we got the FA Cup final. You know, it's, it's not that bad. But you're thinking, oh, this should be much better. 
the balance wasn't right. And it's a kind of almost a magical thing that the great managers know how to do. They just know how to balance a thing. And maybe looking at that commander team, but suddenly when it actually fitted, when everyone was in the right places, you almost knew who had to play. You know, you knew the left back's fine. Sometimes Bexy, usually Dylan, whatever, is fine. It's sort of Gus, fine, right back. Two certain backs, and, and even like Ray and McGowan together, they, they just had a great understanding because Ray had like that good intelligence of covering all the time. And he was also capable, well capable of attacking a ball. And McGowan liked to attack the ball as well, but they just played really well. So the nice, nice balance about it. But you needed the balance in the midfield as well. And the midfield balance with when Holt started doing what he was doing off Mavis with them two, they kind of, one came, one went. It's not as simple as that, but they understood each other. And suddenly the whole thing starts to feel, yeah, this is all right. This, this works. This, there's no, nothing out of place. And I think he, he kind of wanted, Bobby wanted me, and, and mostly in the right-hand side. People do forget, I played a lot of the time in the left as well, because I, I, I was very comfortable, don't care. Maybe a slight preference for left, but didn't really mind. You would always just give that balance. And even during the game, Actually, we're, we're creating the hunt from the left, right? I'll, I'll go over the other and just link over there. We had people we could bring on that would adapt it and change it as well. But that whole thing just felt right. And you know yourself what the best 12, 13 was. You kind of knew it. But I mean, you look at modern games with particularly down there in, in England where I do most of my work now. There's a lot of teams you don't actually know what the best team is most of the time. You know, they're just, they're not that shape. Whereas, you know, about a third of the way through the season with that group, you just thought, no, no, this is right. It's balanced. Everyone's covering everybody else and everyone knows what each other's doing. And I think that's what made the difference. That we are a very balanced side and there was no obvious weaknesses. Was a box unticked to come back and play in the Premier League in Scotland? Um, I would kind of love to say it was. Um, I wanted to come back home just because I wanted to come back home. There's a number of reasons. So I've just written a book. I don't know if you're aware of this. I've written a book. And I explained to people my ideology in football. And I explained what I did. Now, the book's called The Accidental Footballer. I'm not selling it here. I'm just answering a question. The reason why I mention it is because it, I, I didn't want it to. I didn't desperately want to be a footballer. It's an odd thing to say because I loved playing football. Played football basically for the joy and the love of it. And that's why I played. Uh, it paid. That's good. Excellent stuff. It was a job for a while, but it's not something I ever wanted to do as a kid. I wanted to play football, but I didn't want to be a footballer. Now, that's odd. Now, when I began to play for whoever it was, play Chelsea, Everton, whatever, I actually kept that attitude. <laughs> and it's an odd one to have. So when you ask the question about coming to commander and boxes unticked, or, you know, some people would say, is that a step down? No, it's the love of playing. That's it. It's the, that is it. Everything else is secondary. And it was nice to come home. And then the biggest thing is my dad didn't have to travel 800 miles round trip to go and see me every week, which he did every week through my entire career. He had just had to jump down the train to Kelly. So that was fantastic. But in actual fact, it was about the joy of playing. And that was it. And that, by the way, as you can tell, Kelly was a right good decision in that one because I loved every second of it. Pat, that is something I was going to ask about as well, which is it's kind of linked to the idea of playing in the Premier League, returning home, 
and your dad going to pretty much every single game across a kind of a 20-year career. I wonder if then maybe seeing you running out at Celtic Park, for him that would have significance. And so for you, in a sense, it would also have significance in that way. It did have some significance uh, because I'd have still been at that point, you know, a Celtic supporter, but I was desperate to beat them, like, absolutely desperate. And obviously, that's where I stood as a kid, you know, on the, in the jungle. But I, I had absolutely no compunction. In fact, I'd love to beat them 6-0 if I could. <laughs> that's not how it works when you're a footballer. You're desperate to show. And of course, there'd been this big link with me, Celtic, all through my career. I'd been in S form. They got rid of me. They tried to buy me back three or four times. I didn't hide the fact that Celtic was my team. And so there was a kind of feeling of when I play against them, you're going to see the best of me, lads. <laughs> really are, you know. And not that you're not going to every week, but they're desperate to get something there. So Celtic Park had something. I, to be honest, I got it slightly out of my system because I played there once before for Everton in a pre-season friendly. And uh, I kind of got it out of my system. I had to play that one game. And that's an 850 professional game. The only time I was nervous was that game. And I was a friendly. I mean, how weird. <laughs> but that was just how it is. You know, your team. By the time it was at Kelly, you're just desperate to get one over on them. I mean, they had a good team at the time. Um, but certainly, we gave them some right close ones. You know, at the start, they'd, they'd done this 4-0, I think, in the first game. But as time went by, I mean, I'm going to have a... You're, you're chatting just now. I'm going to have a look down and see what it was. It was another 4-0 away from home. So we didn't do much on we were really unlucky with a home game, a 2-1. And I do remember that game well because that was on the telly. And we also got a 0-0 against them. So against a right good team, we, we, I certainly, you know, at Rugby Park, we were, we, we could take them on toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And by the way, we didn't sit in defence. We took them on toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And that was one of the real joys about it. It doesn't matter what you say about Scottish football. You want to do selling Rangers. You just want to do them. <laughs> so that's that's the way it is and that's the way I felt as well so there was something in it my dad absolutely would have wanted Kelly to win I can tell and even though he was a Celtic man I can't say the same for my brothers and sisters to be absolutely honest with you <laughs> I think my sister Mary would have been on my side in those games uh, not sure about the rest of the family <laughs> of course I had this big problem where as, as people in Scotland will know very, very well, you know, if, if you're a Celtic man, like my dad was, you know, the idea of wearing a blue and white scarf is kind of pretty upsetting concept. And of course, what did I go and do during my career? Play for Chelsea, blue and white. Play for Everton, blue and white. Play for Tramia, blue and white. Play for Kelly, blue and white. <laughs> Just annoying my dad. But um, funny enough, he did, he did put the scarf on. <laughs> I'm very much blue nose when I'm in England, and I'm very much was always green when I was in Scotland because Celtic was my team as a supporter, and then probably quite well known. I changed and I became a Hibernian supporter. Uh, but at the time at Kelly, you know, the, by the way, I, maybe you want to ask that question. I don't know why did I not choose Kelly as my team, you know, that, which is interesting because you know back up, I had to choose a team when I stopped. And actually, fact, it's very simple. I, I didn't want to actually have any baggage for my son. Um, I just wanted to choose a team that he and I could go to and kind of Hibs had been my second team as a kid you know so I just we went along one day and kind of stuck and we kind of fell in love with him a wee bit so that was that it's like we're talking about the kind of difficult times at the start of those games we had a, that game against Celtic it was a nil-nil game at home I think then was that November-ish 
then we went on some run. We went on, we were after what was difficult season. I'm looking at it now as we speak. From the 23rd of November, we lost four games in the league. A 3-2 defeat by Dunfermline, a 1-0 defeat by St. Johnson, and a 2-1 defeat by Celtic. So we only lost three games from November to the end of the season. And four games, and three of them were single goals. So there was nothing in it, right? That is some run for a Kelly team. I mean, for the team that had a tough start. When I look back at the time, I couldn't have told this until I looked up. It doesn't surprise me because I knew we were a decent team. And it kind of started, as I said, that Hearts game. I just looked around and thought, nah, this is a team. I would like you to be to take one step out of it and think, being honest, your level of fitness and you coming to the fore in that team, how much of an impact do you think that had on the team's fortunes? Um, I, I, I certainly think it was just part, a, a part, a cog. I would hope and I really do hope. The, the game after the Hearts game, I scored against Hearts, but then scored two against the Berlin the next game. We won 2-1. And I can remember going out for the home game against Celtic and just turning to some of the players and going, do you know what? Do us a favour. Don't be scared of these guys. I play against better than them all the time. You're good enough. You are good enough. Now, I'm not, I wasn't always the biggest shouting baller in a dressing room. And I wouldn't be the strongest and biggest character. I was much more of a watcher. If I looked as if someone was a bit worried or uptight, I'd go and have a word, you know, just quietly and just say, by the way, that guy you're up against, he is hopeless in his left foot. Just take him left. Every time, right? So I was kind of student of the game as well. Just quietly say the odd words here and there. Working little technical things. Remember those games around about that time? And I, my fitness was, was okay. My fitness was good. I was always a, a really fit. Guy, I was always into long term, long distance running. That wasn't a problem. But when that happened, then I started like speaking to a few people, and then saying to like, you know, Holty, just go, mate. Just, just you know, you're good enough. Just go for it, you know. And with Dylan, I loved playing with Dylan Kerr. I just loved playing with Dylan Kerr. Just said, I don't give a stuff. And of course, his personality was a huge personality, and he didn't have any fear of anyone because he was too daft to be fearful of anyone. And I remember at that point in time, a few of them looking around and thinking, right, this time I'm walking out with a bunch of guys that aren't scared they're going to get pumped 6-0. I'm walking out with a bunch of guys, and I'm, I might have been part of that. Because if this wee guy out, out in the wide areas is saying, I don't give a stuff about them. To, to me, to some degree, and this sounds odd, it's only Celtic Rangers. It's not as if it's Liverpool. It's not as if it's Everton, it's not as if it's Spurs, it's not as if it's that. It's only Celtic and Rangers. Now, to them, that's a weird thing to say. Celtic and Rangers were good teams, actually. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell them that. They were good and were doing all right things in Europe at various times. But I still thought that we could stand there toe-to-toe. And having played with teams that have done that, and knowing that I was surrounded by players that were capable of doing that on their day, yes, my creativity might have helped. I hope I made some of the players better. I know it was one or two who I helped technically. I know I helped Billy. I, I specifically helped Billy in a couple of things because uh, Ali Mitchell was phenomenally fit player, as in, you know, up there with the fittest I've ever played with. I mean, really, really top level fitness. Technique-wise, 
could have helped. And I had a look at him and he, to give me his duty, he said to me, is there anything you can do to help? And I said, yeah, I could actually. And I could do it quite quickly if you want. I mean, staying behind with me in the afternoons uh, for an hour or so, every couple, two or three days a week. Anyway, yep, I'll do it. And I said, well, okay. I never ever pushed anybody into it. But some of them started noticing after training, they'd go home and I didn't. And I stayed. And I did my technical stuff that I did. Billy started staying. Beggy, Berkey, some of them started staying. And I'm not pushing them. You, just, you want to come along and do the technique stuff? I'll show you. I would say Billy was the one that, that came, a, came along quickest. He really wanted to learn some of that stuff. And it's all about, it's like this dribbling round stick stuff and all the rest of it. Right, it's the simple stuff. But I know how to make that more complex, complicated. And then there's the, the kind of Dutch models of that. So I would, I'd done all that sort of stuff as well as a kid. My dad had been a coach and I'd learned that. So it was looking at where their weaknesses were and saying, right, okay, you need that, you need that. Didn't do it millions of times, but did it enough to get them a bit improved. And certainly I thought Bucky was improving, but as I say, and Beggy was desperate to improve, but there was no doubt that Ali Mitchell was the one that became a better player really quite quickly because of that. So did I have an effect? Hopefully on the pitch, hopefully off the pitch, hopefully psychologically, because if a wee kind of quiet guy, it's quite quiet, some of the time, could turn around and say, I don't care about them. And I clearly didn't care about them, because I would go and try and dribble five of them, you know, even if they were in a Celtic strip or a Rangers strip. So maybe that had an effect on that. But then there was plenty more that were having a good effect as well. Not long into his second season with Kilmarnock, Pat made the surprising decision to leave, to take up the role of Chief Executive of Motherwell. I asked him though to reflect on the what might have been of a midfield of Pat Nevin and the new signing Ian Durant. I know, it was, it was so, it looked so good. Um, I was so desperate to stay. And if I could have sorted out the disagreement I had with the club, it would have been brilliant. Um, I was just happy. And for me to leave, a place where I was incredibly happy was torture, absolute torture. And then, and then you bring in Durante, Coyster was just about to sing. And you're looking about thinking, oh, really, I love this. I mean, this could be really good. And it was hard. It was, it was, it kind of broke my heart a wee bit to leave because I didn't want it. Um, but, or I'd, I'd rather it didn't happen. I would say that, rather it didn't happen. The weirdest thing is, without going into any detail, because that, that's not what you're doing here, sadly, you'll eventually end up reading about it. <laughs> I do cover it all. Um, you know, leaving it was was hard because of the quality of team, and they were they weren't getting worse; they were getting better, and that had been a good thing to be part of. I'd come into some really good formative team, as you know. It was a goal I started, I scored at the start of that season against Dundee United, which uh, wasn't bad, was it? It was all right. <laughs> I remember Durante coming over and saying, "That's quality, you know." You know, and Durante and I had been in the same Scotland squads and stuff. So there was something, we could have been a different type of team. Again, we could have been, and, and come, come on, did have a good season at mid-season. Um, I, th- I think it would have been something pretty special because the match intelligence would have been good, you know, in that, that, that grouping. I just hope Bobby would have wanted to play us both together. <laughs> Maybe just either or, but um, yeah, I, I think it would have been pretty special. It would have been quite good. There was one other thing that, club weren't quite aware of and had never asked about is that 
had some amazing links down south. And the players I could have got for Kelly uh, were kind of would have been very good. So if it was a, a, a difficult in some areas, considering I'd had 15 years down there and I understood the market down there and I had a lot of contact down there, I could have, if, if Bobby would have said, by the way, there's stuff we need to set in my field that I could have given him five guys, you know, and, and like that. And that side of it was a wee bit of shame because, you know, I was, I was very, very happy to help. Wasn't look, looking for a job to do that. I, I was just very happy to help doing that. So those sort of things could have been good as well. But football's like that. It's ifs and maybes, you know, and it was, uh, you know, I did play another two years when I was at Motherwell, but in some respects, it was my, my last full year as a professional footballer. And I'm just happy it was a cracker. You acted as chief executive at Motherwell. You are, I don't want to kind of use these the trite phrases, but you're well known to be a person who is intelligent and articulate. You'd interest in that level of, or I assume you must have that kind of more long-term interest. No. 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 Just no. Chief executive, carry on. The thing that you would ever be, have been interested in. No. I had no interest whatsoever getting into executive level. I had no interest whatsoever in becoming a football manager. None of those things. Um, a guy was stuck in a, a tricky, difficult position, John Boyle. He'd bought a football club and he knew, he knew nothing about football. He'd met me two or three times. Um, people had said he could kind of sort a few things out there for you. He came and asked me, and I immediately, he'd asked me before. He was trying to buy another club about 10 years previously and he wanted me to run that club, and I'd said no. <laughs> and uh, he then asked me at this point, and I immediately said no. And then I had my difficulties with the Kelly board. And then I went, all right, there's nothing else to do, as long as I can still play a bit. Um, but I had absolutely no will, will, want to do that, willingness to do that. I was quite keen um, to write maybe journalism. That was the direction I was going. Um, so no, I had no interest in that at all, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's a very odd thing. It's, it's, from the outside, it looks one thing. Because I, I know why people think that and why you ask that. I'd been chairman of the PFA in England for five years. So here's a guy who's a committee man who knows how to do that sort of stuff. I fought tooth and nail not to get that job. I really did. I did not want that job. But I get voted. And it's a, it's a brilliant story how I get voted in to do that. I, I, I was trying everything not to get it. And I didn't even put myself up for election. But I still get voted to do the job. <laughs> so I, I, I didn't have a massive d desperate. But I also, in life, things come along and it, it's an opportunity and it's interesting. And that was interesting. Had I, quite simply, and by the way, this is not even, I don't, I don't have to think about this. Had I been able to iron out my little difficulty at Kilmarnock, I would not have taken the mother job. Not a chance. Not even a thought of it. I wouldn't have even considered it. In fact, when I was first asked, I didn't consider it. So there is a narrative that, oh, you had this big opportunity to go to Motherwell. I'm afraid it's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's just, it, was, it happened to fall into my lap as I was leaving Kelly. Excellent football. I finished that the day I leave Tranmere. The uh, day I leave Everton. Uh, that takes me up 28 years of age. I could have written the entirety of my career into it. But it would have ended up concertina and everything. And like Kelly would have got three pages or something. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. So what I've done, just to explain it to people, particularly Kelly fans or anyone, 
I just sat down and wrote and kept on writing and kept on writing and kept on writing. So 220,000 words later, which is two books, <laughs> I've not stopped yet. Yesterday I finished Motherwell. So Kelly's been done, I've written it. My whole career and my memories of it and all the time was it Kelly, it's been done, I've written it. So if book number two comes out, all the Kelly stuff's there. And it's, and it's done with hopefully depth, with the love, affection of the time that I was there. And an honesty. Um, and I, I can't say it, but I can say one thing. There's definitely as much enjoyment in the second one as there is in the first one. The part who will see the light of day. I can't, well, one day, one way or the other. So the Kelly fans will actually definitely hear that whole story. And, and by the way, there are some fabulous, fabulous stories in it. <laughs> I promise you, stuff that has never been told before, which are a joy. But there was an element of real disappointment that you had you had left. But I think it would be very interesting. I think what you what you've already said here will maybe allow Kelly fans to reflect a little bit more on. Uh, can, can, can I, can I, I've never hidden it. I've never hidden. I've always said it. I could have gone and hammered the Kelly ownership and the board. I could have battered them. I didn't. I went quietly. And I took up the other job. I came back and played against Kilmarnock for Motherwell. Just a very short time there, I think, the second, uh, end of the next season. And I got booed by all the Kelly fans. And uh, at the end of the game, I had all the journalists come up to me and said, what do you feel about that? What about them Kelly fans having a dig at you? And I went, I love the Kelly fans. I absolutely love the Kelly fans. I've not got a bad word to say about them. I had a brilliant, brilliant year there. And I will not say a negative word. Now, at that point in time, I could have said, look, guys, this is what happened. Please love me again. No, it's not important. The reason why it's not important is because I'm not going to turn Kelly fans against the club. I'm not going to do that. Why, that, that. How ignorant and arrogant and selfish would that be? I'll take the hit on it. I'll definitely take the hit on it. One day, and now quite soon, that story will be told. And people will think, oh, God, we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but I don't want that. I had a lovely time there. And as any Kelly fan will know, any Kelly fan will know, I have never in my puff said a negative word about that club. Never, ever, and, and in fact, forget that. I have always been ultra positive about that club. I'm talking to you just now. I got asked a question on BBC Radio 5 on Saturday. And I changed the whole question to talk about Kilmarnock instead of, <laughs> instead of the Scotland team. Because we were interviewing Stevie Clark, and Clark is one of my best mates. And they said, what's the best thing you've ever done in your career? And of course, he has to say Scotland just now. And, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a UK-wide station, and of course, that's what they want to hear. And I said, wait, no, 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 I need to jump in here. <laughs> what he done at Kilmarnock, and the season that Kilmarnock had under Clark, the time they had it on Clarky High, was extraordinary. And I explained why. And it, is, it was an amazing thing, an amazing thing. But what a great opportunity to say. And I, I loved that place. And then I was able to say that again. Tiny wee things like that, just being able to say it and come back on underlines it. So, yes, there was negativity. But I'd been there before. I'd left Chelsea after five years. And I was a player of the year twice. And the day I left, they got relegated. And that looked like this little rat running off a sinking ship. 
they hadn't offered me a new contract. I didn't tell Chelsea fans that. I didn't, I, why, why would I go and make their ownership look stupid or, or offensive towards me and make them angry? I don't want to do that. Hey, you need to get behind your club because you know you, you, that's your club and you go ahead from here. So it was a very, very moral decision I made at that time to take the hit from Kelly fans. But I always had a real confidence that it's okay. It'll be fine. They're good people. They'll get it eventually. That was obviously a difficult thing to do at the time. Would you have been able to hold your tongue in the modern era of social media? Yeah. I don't see any difference. No difference whatsoever. It's, it's nothing got to do with anything except the morality. It's just, a, it's just you are. I get enough stick on social media. We all do. <laughs> it's, it's how you take it. And you just sit and go, yeah, you, you might think that, mate, but I, I won't argue with you. I just don't agree with you. All you can put out is who you are, behave the way you are. Now and again, there's an unfairness out there. Um, you mean, the, 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 the daftness of that is, if you see how I'm looked at, in England, it's, it's kind of, and then you compare that to how I would be considered in Scotland, we're two different human beings. I'm not two different human beings. <laughs> I'm the same guy, <laughs> and I'm always the same guy. So you've got to remember some of it is media, social media, the way it is twisted, and not twisted, but it's the lens in which they look through things. I'm just always kind of comfortable when I can talk to yourself in a in camera or a microphone or in TV, because then people say, see kind of who you are, as opposed to, you know, what they read through a second person. And that's maybe the biggest mistake that social media makes is if someone writes something, they think that either you believe that, you said that, or it's your idea. And you're thinking, no, that's a report on you. That's not what you said. If you actually say something and they disagree with it, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. So no, it's a moral position. And the moral position was, I know what I'm doing here and I would have done it anything and I'd, have done, I'd do it today. In fact, I've done it recently. Uh, something, a company treated me, I thought, very, very badly. Um, well, I would say badly is not the word, but with no care or consideration. And I could have gone and hammered him. I didn't. Shrug your shoulders and move on, you know. Be yourself. The world is a, an ugly place when you walk about bitter. I was very, very serious about my football and about playing my best, about doing everything I could possibly do to be incredibly fit, to come off every game exhausted of doing everything and to make sure I was technically the best I could. And I wanted not to let anyone down and all that. But also knew it was kicking a butt of leather about. <laughs> That's all it is. I mean, I look at the rest of my family who were teachers and you know, in education and helping people. I'm a family failure. I look at my daughter just now. She's in Cross House in Kilmarnock as one of the doctors. You know, she's in the front line of the coronavirus just now. By the way, I bet you that surprised you. My daughter's at Cross House. <laughs> she has a, she's a second year doctor now, and she's been through all that just now. And it's, uh, it's extraordinary that people take football serious. And I've been talking to my angel of a daughter 
And I think, yeah, I've done nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing in comparison. Yeah, it's kind of important. And people's jobs are something's, you know, on the line. So that part is important. But the other side of it, come on, let's have a laugh. The, the reason why I can tell these stories or, or remember things that seem a bit odd is because I was such an outsider within that world. Now, I didn't feel as much of an outsider with Kelly, but I was an outsider within that world because I had different interests in most of the, the players and I was quite voyeuristic in watching them and things that they thought were normal. I'd go, that is just weird, you people. You football, I mean, I was called a weirdo when I was at Chelsea and I'm thinking, no, no, I'm the normal one. You lot are all weird. <laughs> and I really believed it strongly. <laughs> and, you know, that's the reason why I can do this. So, you can, you'll not, I'll not be able to remember all the things. You won't have a time to talk about it here, but I have written everything I possibly could remember about my time at Kelly. So, any fan, if they ever want to hear it, they'll eventually hear it. Don't worry. Pat's vision and craft allowed him to strike up a strong understanding with Paul Wright. In the 1997 European Cup Winners' Cup, training ground work came to fruition in spectacular style. I'm really happy you brought that up. And this is good. This is why interviewing techniques are interesting when you do that and you talk to someone else. Because that was a moment with Paul and me. I'd, I'd done that move with Tony Cotty. I'd done that move with David Speedy. I'd done that move with top, top strikers, you know, all, all through my career. Aldo, brilliant, right? But did I have anybody at Kilmarnock that would read this? That I'm going that direction, like 100 meters, right across the penalty box, and he's going to run away behind me 20 yards an oblique angle that doesn't how on earth can I see that but he knew in that moment how may spot this and as soon as he made a run I'll get you I know it's behind my left my right ear I'll get you don't worry and that's that was a great moment for me and of course if you're a striker kind of good <laughs> you think whenever I make a run that guy's going to see me <laughs> you know he might not get to, to me but he's going to try and get it to me and that's why Bunyan is a, a class striker. At the start of his all-too-brief second season, Pat was at it again. His artistry making the Dundee United goalkeeper look just a bit foolish. But coming up, a little piece of Pat Nevin magic. You need ability to chip a man of Dijkstra's stature. And the Kilmarnock man isn't short in that commodity. This goal was an absolute delight. For anyone who's seen Sandy Lyle at the Masters, when he's take, doing the... I don't know if you, if you follow golf at all. Yeah, big golfer, yeah. When he chips it out of the bunker and he's looking and he's watching and it's drifting and it's dropping and it's in, it's the fist pump and it's the... Yeah, that was exactly where I placed it. Yeah. Dundee United, 1998, and you managed to chip Sieg Dijkstra on his own line. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was interesting though. Quite recently, give you a context on it, Kamalik fans were really nice about that. It's a good goal. It was a really good goal. I was really happy with it. It was probably my most common type of goal I scored in my career. That and the scoop. And people at different clubs, you know, have only seen you for a period of time. Football wasn't on the telly, so they, you don't know it. 
recently I put up, and it was me that done it, uh, edit of some of my best goals in my career. It's kind of to go with the book. But if you type in Pat Nevin skills in YouTube, right? Trust me, that goal's there, right? But you'll be surprised how many others are similar to it. And the, the scoops and the one-on-ones. And if the keeper's got every angle covered, I'm very comfortable. I'll clip you. I'll chip you or I'll scoop you. And that one, I have to say that that's up with the, my very favourite ones in my entire career. And I'm, I'm going to give you the reason why, and it's going to be a wee bit disappointing. The camera angle was good. <laughs> I, mean, I know some of the other goals that I scored that were really good goals, but maybe it's not a great camera angle. That camera was right behind it. You can see what I'm trying to do. You know exactly what I'm doing and you can see everything in it and the, the whole 3D picture that when you're on your best form, you see these 3D pictures all the time. You know, you look at the Silvers and the Zolas and all that. They basically live in this 3D world. But some of us spend some time in that 3D world <laughs> and that's where I kind of was in, in certain parts of certain games. And that was a real lovely moment. And I'm really happy it was there because I scored a few goals for Kelly. Um, and I've made a few that I was even happier with. But that was kind of a really good moment. And it was a bit of a send-off moment. And the home side increased their lead just three minutes later with a quite sensational goal. Confident build-up work. Henry spots Pat Nevin. He fires in the cross. The keeper in no man's land and the ball hits the target. 2-0. That's Nevin's first goal in Scotland for 15 years. He beats Andy Dow quite easily. The keeper is nowhere to be seen. But did Nevin mean it? You have this thing when you're playing balls wide from wide, right or left, you put it in at an angle that if it happens to drop in at the back post, it drops in at the back post. Really, it's the most common. Usually I would do that from the left. And you see it a lot now. Uh, Willian does it a lot, used to do it a lot for Chelsea. So you come in from the left, you're on your right foot, and you spin it in. Now, in actual fact, I've scored quite a few from that angle. You're not trying to score, but you know you put it in there and nobody touches it, it'll go in. And it's the same sort of thing. You, I'm not absolutely trying to score, but I'm putting it in that precise area that if nobody touches that, that might go in. So do you do Have I deliberately tried to clip it to that precise thing? No, absolutely not. I'm not I'm, that would be a lie. Uh, but you put it into an area that it might go in if no one gets to it. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you try to do. It's a kind of half answer, but, uh, but an honest one. I was going to follow up on that to say that surely the football answer is yeah, of course I meant it. Yeah, no, at the time, yeah. Absolutely. I tell everyone just to say yeah. You know, because at the time you want, it's, a, it's, it's an excitement of it. It's the, the fans want to love it. The, you know, why do yourself down? Billy McNeil once told me. Don't do yourself down. There's plenty of other people who do that. He used to say that to me quite a bit when was, I was his first signing as an S-bomb. And he knew I was incredibly hard on myself. And I was unbelievably hard on myself. And I'm thinking 850 games and all that stuff. Lots of things I did. I would say there's maybe a handful of games, five, six maybe in that time. But I think, yeah, that was good. You know, that was great. I'm happy with that. That's hard. That's really hard on yourself. But it's okay being hard on yourself. Don't then be hard on yourself and then tell everybody else how hard you are because they'll start believing you. <laughs> so you shouldn't... The footballing thing is to just kind of nod along, but you should be quite hard on yourself because you need to improve.
So how did the creative maverick Pat Nevin fit into the defensively drilled team of Bobby Williamson? The back line, I have to, I have to own up to this, guys. Kind of wasn't Bobby, it was Clarky. <laughs> he was the one who did the technical stuff. Bobby very quickly knew that I knew how to cover. And so he very quickly learned that, you know, if there was a danger situation and, you know, Gus or somebody had been overcovered and gone beyond, I'd, I'd just get there. Then you, you learned the game and you knew where to go. He knew I wasn't a lazy player, you know, a winger who would sit, stand out in the wing up there. If our left winger had gone too far up the pitch and they'd broken, I knew that I had to get round behind our right midfield and I would do it immediately. Ham to be, as I say, a, a distance runner, so I'd, getting there was never difficult uh, for me either. Bobby left me that. He trusted me to go and cover those positions. And I was quite often in the pitch dragging people in, in certain areas as well. So he, he kind of trusted my technical position to do that. I can't ever remember him telling me one word of that other than go out and do what you do. You know, go and create. To be honest, you, you kind of need to know that about me that I won't let you down by being lazy. I won't let you down by, you know, not working hard enough or covering or doing all the, the, that sort of stuff. But if you stay from me, attacking-wise, you're, you're reckoning. You're reckoning what you could get out of it. I didn't even need to say those words to Bobby. Bobby knew. And then he just let me go on with it. It was lovely. It was really, that's why when you go to join a team, I mentioned right at the start of our discussion, people talk about the money or, you know, who you're playing for or what league and all that sort of stuff and European football. It's kind of neither here nor there for me. I want to hear the words, right? We are creative. Right, you'll be given freedom. I trust you. And that's what I want to hear. Because if you don't know that much about me, then don't employ me. I will do the, the ugly stuff. Don't worry, I'll cover you. But let me create. Because it might sound arrogant, but I may be a wee bit better at that position than you are. <laughs> and, you know, so without being arrogant, let me do it. And if you make a backside of it, then the lovely thing is, we go back to that game where I had a tough time at the start and Bobby took me off at half time. And Bobby talked to me afterwards and he said, I've got it for you, my man. I've got it for you. It's not working for you yet. He wasn't furious. He wasn't angry. He wasn't annoyed with lack of work. You could see all that was there. So working with people like that, and that's a bit trust. And that's why Bobby was brilliant for me. Never, ever said, go do that, 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 and that. I think structurally it was the back line that was the work. That's where the technical stuff was done. Forward third, KB, Clarkie and that. It came let us do it. Air United, Ayrshire Cup final. I don't have many. I don't do football stuff in my, in my house. As you can see, there's album covers and all that behind. One of the pictures, one of the very few pictures up is me, Dylan Kerr and Holty, the Ayrshire Cup. Because two of my best mates I've ever known in football. And we're there and it was a brilliant night. We played really, really well. It was the Ayrshire Cup. The fans absolutely loved it. Uh, it's one of my best memories of my football career. And I know it's only inverted commas the Ayrshire Cup, but it meant so much because it was there. You know, and it was really, really fantastic. And it was you know, because it was a few goals as well. So that, that one was spectacular. And the other one, to be fair, is beating Rangers last, the second last game of the season. And we beat them 1-0. And Ali Mitchell scored. And that was 
joyous. That was just unbelievable because we should never beat them. Had a number of effects, obviously got us to European football again. I had some downsides as well. Um, my family were rather delighted with that because that stopped Rangers getting 10 in a row. As people forget now, that was the one that killed them, it was that game, which made me very popular. And I went to a bar to meet one of my friends after the game down by Toll Cross in Glasgow. And there's a bar down there. And it's a Celtic supporting bar. <laughs> and the owner just said, you will never buy a drink in this pub again. <laughs> Everything's free from now on <laughs> because we beat Rangers that day. But it was a real joy because we scored the goal. Kevin McGowan, right foot cross from the right wing. What are you doing there, big man? Um, and I dragged the ball. I was just killing time. I was taking the ball up to the corner. And uh, Billy came in at the back post and scored. But there is a moment there. And, and football is about moments. And they're not all about your own moments. But Billy goes up to our fans and gets his ears. And Jim Lachlan and myself, and I said, jump in the back of him. And it is, it is a band of brothers moment. But the background is all Kelly fans. Because we're right in front of them. And I, I, I don't think you can get it. It's a spine thing I'm thinking about, to be fair. <laughs> it is, for so many reasons, it is, it's a moment when it kind of peaked. That was the moment it peaked. It hit then. And I, I, I couldn't have imagined things going wrong after that for me at Kimana because it was such a high in that moment. And the sadness of it, it went wrong quite quickly after that. But hey, that was a moment. Wow, that was a good moment. Thank you to Pat Nevin for such an enjoyable hour. It seems that the club left a real impression on him, as he did on many Killy fans during his short time with the club. Pat's book, The Accidental Footballer, has received fantastic reviews. Here's hoping Volume 2 appears in the not-too-distant future. And you really should type Pat Nevin's skills into YouTube. Killy Histories is a not-for-profit project made for the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association with tremendous backing from Hall of Fame members Paul Clark and Ray Montgomery. You can find out more at killyhistories.com or follow on Facebook and Twitter at Killy Histories. Look out too for a monthly feature in the new Killy magazine. For a second season, I am incredibly grateful to the Killy Trust for sponsorship which covers all production costs. You can find out more about the Trust and its relationship with Kilmarnock FC at thekillytrust.com. If you like Killy Histories, please do spread the word and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The theme music Clear Progress by scottholmesmusic.com is used under free Creative Commons license. Episode 21, out in November 2021, features that Easter House boy, Bobby Williamson. I'm Gordon Gill. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>